So you know the black wedding ring we talked at length about? Your wedding ring? Yeah. Yeah. I lost it. What? <laughs> I lost it. <laughs> so I have to wear this one that April has just because I need to have something to wear. How did you lose your wedding ring? So the idea was I'd grow into the ring. But with all the cold weather, my fingers got really slim. And I just lost it washing my hands one day in a public toilet. It was just so cold. It just slipped off. I didn't even know. This is crazy. It's probably still there. Don't say that. We got half price. Now we're just ending up paying full price because we're buying two of these at half price. Fine. So you're buying a replacement ring. You're buying the same ring again. Yeah. For small size. <laughs> a smaller size. You want a smaller size and a bigger size so you can grow into it. <laughs> no. Did we talk about the wedding ring on the podcast? No. I can't remember. But you've lost your wedding ring. Yes. Okay. And now you've got a replacement. I will get a replacement, yes. Jenny was like, oh, good. You got rid of the black ring. I was like, we'll get another one. It's fine. The so, black ring. <laughs> one ring to rule them all. Fought so hard for it. I have to get another one. Jeez, I'm so shocked. When did you lose that? When was it really cold? When was it really cold? It was never that cold. It was Hong Kong. <laughs> it was really cold three weeks ago. Okay. When you weren't here. Yeah, not compared to the, the UK right now is like under like feet of snow or something, isn't it? At least that's yeah. the impression you get from the news. I was in a video conference with someone from London the other day and they're like, oh, because the video conference kept dropping because of like bandwidth issues. And like, it's the snow. It's like, there's not even any snow anymore. It's just the threat of snow has everyone worried, <laughs> including the internet. It's true. It's just not set up for snow at all. They're talking about there's a risk of running out of gas. Yeah. Were you there in 2009 or 10? Yes. That one day of snow killed London. I still remember that because I lived very close to work. Like I lived 10 minutes walk to work. So I just walked to work and it was quite slippery and it was like a winter wonderland. But still, I just went to work as usual and I got there and I was the only person in the office. Like I was literally the only person in the office, at least on my floor. And then an hour or two later, another guy like struggled in. He's like, oh, took me three hours to get here. I had to catch like five trains, like everything was cancelled. And then the whole day, we were the only people there. So there was me who had <laughs> walked in 10 minutes. This guy who had fought for hours across various different trains. No one else came in. They were like, oh yeah, my train was cancelled. Sorry. And then <laughs> they just posted pictures of themselves on Facebook, like making snowmen. And we were like, we're kind of holding the fort here. Thanks a lot, you chumps. <laughs> Good thing you're in. You know, the, the, the moment they saw you're in, we're out going outside. Yeah. Mike's in. It's like, Mike's in, it's fine, we're making snowmen. <laughs> so everyone else was talking about what a great day they had and was like, yeah, I'm in the office. I guess that's the flip side of living 10 minutes walk from work. Although I could have been like that other guy and soldiered in for hours on different trains. He was dedicated. He was the real chump. He was the, re he was the real chump. He quit shortly after that. <laughs> I, think he was, I think he was like, geez, I struggle in all these trains and you just make snowmen. I quit. Any other snowmageddon stories? No, I don't know. Do you have any more wedding ring stories? <laughs> no. Have you lost anything of value recently? Ever? Your sanity? My, well, I lost my sanity a long time ago. Do you know what? I was really sad that I scratched my phone. I got soundly mocked by my family for this, though. They were just like, oh, first world problems. I was like, what? I'm sad. I bought an iPhone X, which you predicted. 
So yes, I bought an iPhone X. I already scratched it. I scratched the screen like five different times since then. <laughs> I, I refuse to put on a screen protector or a case because I'm just like wanton. <laughs> I've just like scratched it a load now. What do you do? Do you just run it along the ground? What what, what are you doing? That's... I was actually really careful with it for ages. I was really careful with it. And then because I've been taking all these flights recently, I have to keep taking it out and put it in the tray for like security. And I put it face down in the tray and the Why? tray must have had this load of grit in it. Why do you keep putting it face down? Well, I didn't, I just wasn't thinking. I just did it absentmindedly one time. And one of the many times I had to take it out of my pocket to go through security. They can't read anything because they don't have your face. It's the beauty of the iPhone. Your lock screen gives nothing away. <laughs> it wasn't for that. No, I literally just took it out of my pocket and just put it in the tray. And I happened to put it face down. Anyway, it got scratched. And then since then, it's just been scratched a whole bunch of other times. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a device. You should use it. You shouldn't, like, put it on a pedestal. That's my excuse now. This is what I tell myself. Yeah, you see people soldier on with, like, half the screen missing sometimes, a lot of the time. Yeah. Do you have Apple Care? I do have Apple Care. Get it fixed, then. Does that get you a free replacement? It's not free, though. You've got to pay for it, don't you? You have to pay a little bit. So maybe just before my Apple Care expires, I'll accidentally drop it or something. Whatever. That's two years away. To be honest, I'll probably genuinely accidentally drop it. It's so slippery. It's like it's made out of Teflon. It's the slipperiest phone I've ever owned. It's your programmer hands. It's my program. It's my soft programmer hands. That's a problem. There, you need to get quit your current cushy job, toughen up, and like yeah. throw rocks. Throw rocks. Around. What's your What's your job? Oh, I throw rocks. It's like, what do you throw them at? Oh, I just throw them. I don't live in a glass house. It's fine. It's too absurd. I have no- nothing to say at the people. They, they didn't specify. They just said toughen up your hands. I don't know. This is your joke. I don't know. Can I pay you to throw rocks at people? <laughs> it's going to be like the Simpsons already did it. Isn't that the episode where like Homer becomes Mr. Burns's comedy monkey and he just tells him to do things like throw fish at children? I don't trust my Simpsons knowledge. I can't pull it out like a lot of people seem to do. I can't believe The Simpsons is still going. It's like absurdist now. I think the last time I really watched The Simpsons was the episode with the Screamer Pillar. That was a good episode. I forgot you don't have to say absurd. <laughs> it's been a long time how do you say it absurd and i say absurd it's got a z right it's english spelling right <laughs> you can't see the expression uh, that's america that's what americans do add z's unnecessarily i didn't say absurd <laughs> <laughs> welcome to lost levels club welcome to lost levels club i have here with me today sir michael hello and myself Ting. Ethy. April likes that. She likes Tingathy. All right, yeah. you can be Tingathy. You can be like Tiny Tingathy. Tiny Ting. You've got little crutches. You can like want the turkey. Does that make me like Scrooge? Yeah, you can be Sir Michael and Tiny Ting. Sorry. 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 This is absurd. It's humor again. Best kind. Today, we're at Book Club for Games. There will be spoilers for. Torment, Tides of Numenera, Tides of Numenera, Tides of, Tides of Numenera, or Numenera. You know, we may slip in that whilst we're recording. To the end of the game, everything will be spoiled. Okay, well, where do we leave off last episode? I want to make one comment here. Okay. Just before we start. Your memory works in a very 
effing different way to mine. You seem to know where, how everything slots together chronologically with alarming accuracy. I just seem to abstract stuff away with words. And I am very clever with my concision. That's not a word I've made up. With how concise I am. And I'm, I'm sort of navigating that as I go along. But you have it all built together. It's all like your jigsaw pieces are all laid out and the puzzle's complete. Whereas I'm frantically trying to pull it all together and just try to have some smoke and mirrors with my, you know, one hand I'm doing the puzzle and the right hand I'm just like, ooh, fans will smoke out so people can't see really what's going on behind the scenes. Is this part of the episode or is this like an <laughs> idle comment? Where is this part of the episode? I mean, it's part of the episode, yeah. Is it, is, this is an interesting point about the kind of games you enjoy and stuff as well. Like, why do I enjoy playing weird puzzle games or why do I enjoy playing games with torturous stories and stuff? I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's just the way my mind works. The funny thing about stuff like this, which is just intrinsically how your mind works, is you don't realise that you're doing it. So, I don't know. It's just how my mind works. I could just do this with absolutely zero effort. Is this unusual? I don't know. To me, it's normal. So you're always well prepared, whereas I am actively trying to process stuff quickly, effectively, efficiently, and I'm trying to piece it together. This is why I'm a big fan of just winging it, because I've already got it mostly there. Okay, I'm always winging it. Oh, that's fine then. So we're both a big fan of just winging it. <laughs> but you don't need to wing it. I actually do. <laughs> and maybe there's a lot of story tropes here that you can refer back to. I'll probably just get it wrong and we'll be proven on the recording that I actually have no idea when anything happened anyway. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, wait a minute, that happened two hours ago. <laughs> There's yeah. always that your memory does fail you. Yeah. You have a lot of- My memory used to be better. You, you know, you, if you think it's good now, it used to be a lot better. Everything used to be a lot better. Life. Life, yeah. Getting old. Getting old is rubbish. Getting old sucks. We're not that old. Wait till we're old. Are we, we going to risk going on one more, one more tangent? We haven't even started yet. We've already gone on like five different tangents. This is terrible. Have you heard this thing about Xennials? Are you a millennial or are you a Gen Xer? Oh, I'm a millennial. You're a millennial. Honest, Gov. Apparently, we're right on the cusp. Yeah, we are. Because we had an analog childhood, but a digital teenage and adulthood. So we can still remember what the world was like before the internet. It was barbaric, man. There were fires in the streets. We used to have to hunt down deer and cook them over open flames. We didn't really do that. But, you know, it may nothing, as well have been. Nothing was on demand. You had to wait for shit. Yeah. You had to wait for media. Do, do you remember trying to meet people before mobile phones? used to be like meet here at this time and then you would go there and you they just wouldn't be there and you'd be like right well do i just wait here till they show up or do i just go because i just go we're never meeting them anyway whatever tangent over what am i then a zillennial <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> you're a zebra <laughs> no, you, you shortened Sorry, it much zebra. more <laughs> wait, wait you shortened it much more so gen x analog upbringing yes. millennial facebook generation gen Z eat Tide Pods. Yeah, but what's the one between Gen oh, Xers and... Xennial. N- no, Zillennial. Well, it's not... For sure. It's, that not, sounds, it's not Zillennial. <laughs> sounds much better. Let's agree to disagree. Fine. Anyway, so where did we leave off last time? We didn't actually get to the meeting with the Memorera, I realise. We kind of talked about getting the, the magmatic annular, but we didn't actually get it we just talked about how to open the portal with Otaglio. yes but to be honest that whole section is just a very disappointing farce anyway you go to the ascension which is this crystal world and 
you solve some basic puzzles. It's basically like one map and then like an in one external map and one interior map, and then you get the annulet, and that's it. The ascension was meant to be this like massive crystal dimension, but it was like boiled down to like two maps. That makes sense. There's a lot of anticipation, but when you get there, there's nothing there. One thing that you did particularly make a note of is the prophet of the cult of the changing god. Or it's it's funny actually. There's a different cult of the changing god. It's like, are you the Judean people's front, or are you the people's front of Judea? You know, there's there's a different cult of the changing god, and there's a prophet of it. And he says, oh, I'm not really a prophet. I just got lucky one time. But he's lying. He really is a prophet because the changing God is talking to him in his ear. This guy, Doran, he's superficially helpful to you. But when you try and leave the Ascension, you have to fight him. And you actually have an option to surrender to him, which actually is just giving your body back to the changing God. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you actually played the game before I did. And I'd actually had a quick look at your notes. And I saw that you made a comment if you surrender Doran, is that game over? Yes, it is. It's just permanent game over. So I tried it for you. Thank you. So now you know. Uh, but yeah, I obviously didn't. And I just fought him and beat him by applying some effort. That's quite cool. I like that. That was the expected outcome. And sometimes this game does weird things to keep you in the game. Anyway, moving anyway. away from the ascension. So now we have the meeting with the Memovira. I'm just going to alternate Memovira and Memovira, sorry. Okay, we'll do a poll at the end and see which one's more popular. <laughs> so you meet her, and I don't know what to say, really. There's some scene with her and Makina where they just accuse each other of stuff, and she gives you the quest to get back. I can't remember what she says the guy's name is. To get back, basically a scientist for her, like a researcher, her expert on ciphers kind of thing. So he's really Mazoff, but she calls him something else. And he's been just, he was working in like a lab and that whole lab just got consumed by the bloom. So you have to get to the bloom's heart and retrieve him. That is her task. And she says that if you help her with this, she'll tell you, where the first cast off is because she knows more on that later so that's the meeting with the memovira out the way you got your quest to try and find another more to get to the bloom's heart and then we're back in the bloom again and you can do what we like so that's actually where we were meant to leave off at the end of last episode so consider that your recap and then the overview of this segment of the game you go to the bloom's heart you retrieve this scientist guy who turns out to be Mazoff. You find out that the Mavira is actually the first cast off. What a surprise. You activate the resonance chamber, do some crazy stuff in the labyrinth in various different fathoms. You encounter the changing god. You resolve that somehow. You encounter the sorrow. You resolve it somehow. The end of the game. Yep. And then also, I think now is a good time to talk about a couple of the companion quests. So we mentioned Rins last time. But in particular, Tibia and Alagurn also have companion quests that can be resolved in the bloom. And in fact, there's also a step for Callistage and similar for Eretis. 
but they eventually get resolved at the very end of the game in the labyrinth. So, did you do any of these? Only Tibia. And only because Dracogen asked for it. Yeah, this one is pretty obvious, because like when you literally first arrive in the bloom, after you've been teleported there from Mila Vest, the first person you meet is Dracogen. And Dracogen actually says to you, do you know Tibia? Can you bring him to have a chat with me? So, when you add Tibia to your party and he meets Dracogen, Dracogen reminds him that he has unfinished business because he owes Dracogen. In fact, I actually can't even remember what is the, the specifics of the favour that Dracogen is owed. I think it's actually like a very nondescript thing. Like it's very unclear. And then he calls in the favour and he just, he asks for something actually very, very minor, but it's actually also slightly cruel because he's, he gives him the ring, like one of these rings. Um, I'm being very unclear in fact myself here. There's, I've set you up. You see, this happens when I, I hype you up. <laughs> you've, you've, <laughs> you've incepted this mental virus. There is a pair of rings that are linked. And whenever you are wearing one of these rings, you can feel the emotions. I was going to say presence, but emotions. presence, presence. Yeah. Maybe presence is a better word for it. Presence. Of the person wearing the other ring. And Tibia and his lover, Orvine, used to wear these rings. I mean, this is a characterization kind of point, actually, because how much is it fleshed out what these characters are like? Because when you meet Tibia, he's trying to save himself. And he kind of sells it as trying to save this guy who's being executed appropriately or inappropriately. But really, it's to save his own skin. And did you have him in your party when you helped out Pequo, the mutant boy who had the money to spend at the Churgeon Clinic in the Sagas Cliffs? Well, I don't think we really talked much about that quest. We might have mentioned it offhand, but there's actually a specific thing that you can do if Tibia is in your party. So going all the way back then... Pequo, you know, is asking, oh, should I make myself beautiful? Should I make myself strong? And then, you know, you can convince him instead that maybe he should spend his money on an education. If Tibia is in your party, you can actually con Pequo out of the money and just take his money. I don't remember that. So maybe I didn't have him. Yeah. So Tibia is actually kind of not a very nice guy. Or is he? I mean, like hidden depths. So this story with him and Orvine in particular... The details of it kind of come up later, but I mean, Dracogen is almost playing a trick on him because when Tibia flees the bloom, he leaves behind his one of these linked rings and Orvine is trying to find Tibia and traces the ring to Dracogen and then Dracogen gives Orvine a mission to do, which he knows will probably get him killed and indeed does get him killed so when tibia comes back and dracogen reminds him that he owes him he gives him the ring and you find the guy who killed orvine so there's an opportunity to either let tibia kill this mutant or hold him back 
And if you actually let Tibia kill the mutant, you actually lose opinion with Tibia, interestingly enough. How did you find that out? Because <laughs> I let it happen and then I reloaded it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm a save scumming scumbag. I was trying to think of a different word for scum, but, you know. Piece of garbage. I'm save scumming trash. If you could quick save in real life, you would totally do it. Come on. Let's be honest here. Oh, yeah. Quick saving is like the ultimate cosmic power. It's like, let's have a do-over. Oh, that'd be hard as well, though, because I didn't, I didn't have one quick save right. You only got one quick save slot, oh, yeah. Shit, I should have quick saved some, you know. I want, I want it all to play out first. Give me 30 years, and I want this quick save here just in case. Because then you'd regret quick saving. Oh, I could just... Oh, yeah, okay. you can make permanent saves as well. Imagine. I get stuck in some sort of quick save loop where I'm just constantly reloading because my first effort was my best effort and I can't recreate it there's there's an episode for Black Mirror right there there is an episode of Black Mirror right there <laughs> anyway I think we should just talk about it now just to finish it off so when you activate the resonance chamber and you're in the labyrinth weird woo, it's the strange wibbly wobbly world of the mind you can actually meet Tibia and Orvine together and you actually discover like the truth of it so it's just like a really strange thing. It's like Tibia, like a completely broken person. Like Tibia loves Orvine so much that he's worried about hurting him. So he just preemptively hurts him to get rid of him. It's like, are people really like this? Maybe some people really are. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a very pleasant thing to do. They have this mission to protect this village. And Tibia deliberately pays mercenaries to burn down the village to piss off Orvine. And that's how they end up being separated and then Tibia flees through the balloon and that's how the whole situation with Dracogen and the rings arises. I feel it can happen. And then so in the resonance you finally get closure for Tibia with Orvine and him realising that you know this was a stupid thing to have done <laughs> but you know Orvine's dead and there's nothing he can do about it now and he has to just accept it. I did think it was interesting as well that they don't make a big deal of the fact that Orvine's another guy I thought that was actually quite good that they didn't make it a defining aspect of Tibia's personality. Because a lot of games, the portrayal of gay characters, their being gay is like a major, major aspect of their personality. And they just don't mention it at all. It's just like, whatever. So I actually thought that was quite good as well. Apart from the fact that Tibia is a bit of a douchebag. But, you know, that's kind of a distinct thing too. It's orthogonal. Yeah, that's what makes it so good. It's just as, as a matter of fact. So that was Tibia's storyline, <laughs> and now to like go on to the next one. So, Allegern's companion quest. So you had Allegern anyway? No. Crazy person. So you I'm, pulled him in for this I'm a crazy completionist. Yeah, I, I just can't help it. I was, I was minding my own business in the Church and Swamp. I actually was here to do Eretus's quest. And, yeah, so many of the companion quests just get rooted through this particular church and swamp i went there i talked to a guy just because he hasn't you know he's a named npc and he goes oh if you see Allegern, can you tell him to come talk with me and i was like oh one minute bronze sphere whoop whoop here's Allegern." <laughs> and then he goes oh Allegern, the black frame we need it to you know sort out your tattoos and then i was like oh what this black frame because <laughs> i'd already got it so it's slightly funny but i actually have no idea 
what the deal is with Alagun's quest, but I completed it. So, I mean, you didn't complete this at all, right? I didn't have Alagun. Yeah, you just like ditched Alagun, like forget Alagun. Yeah. So because I knew Alagun had this quest, because I brought him out to go and look at the colourful light monument in the Valley of Dead Heroes, and then this guy specifically asked for Alagun, so trotted Alagun out, and then he tells Alagun, oh, we need the black frame, but the Murdens have stolen it. And I had already broken into the Murdens treasure room, which is a whole other side questy kind of epic thing on its own which is actually quite fun but don't need to go into details of that so i already broke into their vault and had taken back the black frame i had no idea what it was for i didn't go into the vault yeah so well i did and i got this black frame out of it so orth fong when he talks to alagon will tell him oh we need to get the black frame back it's to do with your tattoos and there's a conversation option that says what's the deal with the tattoos and why do we need to get the black frame back so I clicked on that, and instead of giving me the exposition, Alagun just immediately said, oh, what, you mean this black frame? I already got it back. And then it just ended. It was like, okay, companion quest done. We're sorted. I mean, there's a little bit of exposition, because Alagun actually already knows what the black frame is. And Orthfong actually tells Alagun, hey, you know your tattoos? I hope you haven't been using them too much, because they're actually the people from your village. So... You know Alagun has living tattoos on his body and he can peel one off and like use it and that gives him like this cumulative bonus. That's his like combat skill. So it turns out that tattoos on his body are actually the people from his village that have been like transmuted into energy. That's what the frame does. There's this whole backstory about how the frame came to his village and how he ended up being the only person left and all the other people got sucked through the frame and became the tattoos. But they didn't explain any of that to me. Like, I have no idea, really, of the details of Alagun's story. Well, I looked it up afterwards, so I do. But, yeah, I thought that was quite funny, that it's possible to resolve these quests without actually finding out at all what on earth is going on. So does it matter how often you use that skill in the game? I'm not sure. I think if you encourage Alagun to use it more and more then it kind of makes him unhappy with you once he discovers that actually they're the people from his village and he's potentially damaging them by using them. But there you go. The super high level backstory is that the changing god came to the village and saw the frame and told him how to activate it. And it kind of, well, all these smoke monsters poured out of the frame and then like captured everyone and pulled them through it. And then they became the tattoos. And then he had the tattoos. Well, he was, he passed out. So he didn't realize the connection. But that's actually what happened. And then Orthfong tells him, oh, actually, we can reverse the process, but someone needs to activate the frame and we need a powerful psychic. So it's not something that happens in-game, but it's part of the post-game epilogue if you've completed this quest, is that Alagun manages to restore his village and find his like, wife and child, because they're in there too. But none of this was explained to me. Instead, it was just like, oh, I've got the frame back already, actually. <laughs> it's like, all right then, quest done. Wouldn't it be kind of obvious if your wife and child were... A- a tattoo on your body, a living tattoo on your body. Well, no, they're just like shifting black lines on his body. They're not like, they don't look like people. Oh, okay. And then the best one is probably Eritus. I mean, this is, Eritus is one of the more interesting characters, I think, because he's just so, well, it's really in your face. It's He's a less nuanced character than, say, Tibia. He's just like, I don't know, he's like a caricature, but, you know, at least it's obvious. It's like the jar, with the jar, he's a hero. So if you've got the shepherd's crook and you talk to the shadow of Eritus in your mind, then you know that you should speak to someone who specialises in 
exorcising demons. Although I think demons in the context of Numenera are known to be kind of nano spirits, like nanobots or, you know, super high tech. Technology so advanced it's indistinguishable from magic. I know I said Numenera, not Numenera, in case that's what you were about to point out. I saw your expression change. So again, in the Churgeon Swamp, I can't even remember which one of the Churgeons you talk to. I think the one that specializes in memories and stuff. And you are told, oh yes, I've encountered these before. Go in to the labyrinth and say that you want to talk to the paragons and cathartics. So next time you die and go into the labyrinth, you talk to the Shadow of Eretus again, but you say, I want to talk to the paragons and cathartics. Did you forcibly die? Yeah, I forcibly died. Well, you can kill yourself in the bloom by drinking the bloom water multiple times. So that was, that's an easy way to kill yourself. And then the paragons and cathartics are the demons that are controlling Eretus. So there's two sets. The paragons are really loud and the cathartics are kind of the softer, you know, because there's the two voices, the ones that are shouting and the ones that are kind of like saying subversive things. And, you know, they control him together, but the paragons are the ones that are actually like mechanically moving his body. You know, the cathartics go, yeah, you should put us in charge for a while. And the paragons go like, you know why we don't? You keep throwing heroes off cliffs just to see how they feel about it. It's like, yeah, but it's fun every time. The paragons and cathartics are kind of like the iron wind. They're like a swarm of nanobots that just like infuse themselves into people. But instead of rewriting their DNA and like remaking them like the iron wind does, they instead make them into heroes for drama. And they said that they used to control whole armies of people and make them fight for the lols, basically, just because it made a good show. And then at some point, people tried to bring them back under control and they stopped them from multiplying. And now these ones in Eretus are all that is left. So they used to genuinely be like a force of nature, like the parents and cathartics would like sweep across the land and like convert whole villages into armies and then just make them fight for fun. So, I mean, that's pretty bad. <laughs> but they were effectively neutered and now these are all that are left and they are making Eretus into a hero. They're infused into every cell of his body. You know, you can't remove them without killing Eretus. And then they give you a choice. So they say that usually they're just orchestrating the play, but they don't take part in the play itself. So this is novel for them, the fact that they're talking to you directly. And they say, well, this is interesting. Let's try something new. So, you know, Eretus is like a normal guy. He was like a sheep herder. He's not especially strong. And they are amplifying his strength. They are burning up his life faster to make him into a hero. You know, his body is not going to last very long. And they can burn it up even faster. They say that he's only got like a few years, maybe even just a few months left. And they can burn it up faster. So maybe he's only got a few weeks left. But then he'll become even stronger, faster, you know, more nimble. So that's option one. Burn him out faster, but make him more powerful. Or option two is that they can take a step back and they can stop goading him to be so heroic all the time. So they'll still be in control of his body, but they won't be taunting him with it, which will you know, give him a bit more peace. So that's a choice offered to you? That's a choice offered to you. And choosing to give him more peace is like the gold tide solution. And choosing to make him more powerful is, I don't know, silver or blue tide maybe? It's academically a more correct choice for you to make if you want to use him. You know, if you're using him as a tool. 
I chose, you know, to make them leave him alone because I'm a nice person. I was tempted. But yeah, so that's that. And again, just to close out his storyline, in the Resonance in the Labyrinth, at the very, very end, if you've brought Eretus with you, you encounter him there again. Except that because it's a weird magical construct of your own psyche, you actually can separate the Paragons and Cathartics from his body. So you actually have a chance to pull them apart. And if you do so, then that genuinely frees Eretus for good. He actually gets his own, he gets control of his body back and he can do whatever he wants. And that can lead to an ending where he goes back to being a Yol herder. One last companion quest. This one's very quick. Okay. This one's very, very quick. So, the same Churgens that give you the eye to give to Skura to get her to give you the iron wind. I didn't realize this at all. I actually did this one completely by accident. If you Calistiges in your party when you talk to them, it turns out Calistige actually contracted them to do some work for her about sorting out her situation with her and all her quantum echoes of different possible versions of her. So she was talking to them about how she can either integrate all the versions of her into herself or break them apart. And they tell her that they figured out a way to shut her off from them. So they give her an injection that if she takes it and turns off this thing called the attractor, which I guess is the thing causing the effect, then she will finally be completely separated from her sisters. Her sisters being the other alternate versions of herself. So that is a requirement to finish her quest. And then again, the final step of that is in the resonance. So if you brought her to the resonance with you and you've also given her the changing God's notes about the data sphere, you have the choice of either bringing her back into your party and telling her she should separate herself from her other versions of herself or she can ascend into the data sphere and become, you know, like all powerful, immortal, transcendent. So which did you choose? Uh, I just let her go. I just let her become transcendent. You know, I said, well, what would you want to do? And she said, well, I'd be crazy not to take this opportunity. I want to become transcendent. And then you use your powers to open up a connection to the data sphere. And then she steps through it and becomes kind of omnipotent and omniscient and everywhere. I chose the other way. I'm trying to work out what point this happened that led me to require her to stay with me. Did you not have a complete party at the end? Yeah, I did. But she was in the party. Yeah, yeah okay, so. We can come back to this, because there is an epilogue. Okay, so back onto the main quest line then. Now we've gone and got most of the companions out of the way. Because this, I mean, you have to do the companions before you resolve the Memovirus quest line. Because once you sort this out and go and talk to the Memovirus again, that's it. That's the end of the game, pretty much. So if you were going to do the companion quest, that was the time to do it. Now we have to try and find a more that leads to the heart of the bloom to get back the scientist, who is Mazov. So, did you figure this one out on your own? I'm not sure now. I'm trying to work out, trying to figure out which more it 
is. So the more to the heart of the bloom is in the temple to Chilla. And Chilla is the first Memovira. Who do I need to speak to in Chilla? And inside the temple of Chilla is the observant spec. I don't think I'll work this out myself, if I'm honest. Did you look at a guide? <laughs> you filthy scumbag. I actually worked out in game because do you remember you know when you're trying to get to the trade post there are those merchants and there's the guide that they've hired and they're complaining about how this guide is useless because you know he said he was going to get them through the bloom to the trade post and then the bloom ate the trade post so he's a pretty useless guide i went and talked to him and he suggested that maybe i should go and ask the observant spec and when I talked to the spec, she said, oh, yeah, well, there's a more right here. You just can't see it. And then the bloom reveals the more to you. And then this is the more that wants a predator in order to open. So I fed it the head of Waits for Prey. But you can also feed it the Jar of Iron Wind. Or you can actually feed it, I think, Machina or Callistage, that which doesn't make them very happy with you. Or you can use the scalpel. Did you use the scalpel? Not this time. I had the jar. Oh, okay. The spec is quite an interesting character, actually. Did you talk to the spec at length and get her to tell you, you know, memories of Chilla and the history of the bloom? Yes. The spec is an old woman with one arm. And she seems slightly confused about whether she is the spec or whether she's just another woman and the bloom has made her into the spec. And it's clearly the latter, but she weirdly is confused about it because she talks about how the time the bloom took her arm and then she's like no wait i'm the spec i never had an arm like she's really confused about it so she's kind of thinks she is the spec even though she kind of knows that she isn't logically but she kind of feels like she is and the bloom whispers to her and tells her stories of chiller and she will tell them to you did you use the scalpel at all to open any moors no okay i didn't because i heard that but I thought that I should try and be nice to the bloom. Again, it was like the thing with the mattresses, skin flappy things in the gate, where it kind of told me that I shouldn't do it, so I didn't do it. But actually, I think it probably would have been fine if I had. Regardless, you go through this more then into the bloom's gullet, which is where it kind of digests people's memories. I thought this was quite a cool area. In what way? in comparison to the Ascension. There's like loads more to do anyway. Like you pick up lots of little items as kind of like a puzzle to get to the next bit. And it's actually quite big. There's like a more in there that leads to this other optional area where it's kind of like the bloom has digested like a freaking dinosaur. And you also encounter a few characters that have been eaten by the bloom up to this point. So is it Herger, who's like the knight of the, I can't remember, I referred to her as a space Nazi last time. She's in there, or at least the, the angry parts of her are in there and you have to fight her well I think you can probably talk her down but I just fought her uh, I talked her down okay Artaglio is in there if you used him to open the moor and then if you talk to him you can absorb him and then you get a shadow of him which gives you Artaglio's cunning there's a Murden in there that has a candy dispenser which is really cool and really weird you know, like a Pez dispenser, it's like got a little head on the top and it like spits out candy. So it's a living Pez dispenser, basically. It's like, it's like a little rectangular rod with like 
a feline kind of head and arms on the top that's like purring and cooing and if you squeeze its hand it like buffs up a candy tablet which gives you a permanent plus one to your intellect pool and restores like 30 intellect so basically it's like a full heal for your intellect and then if you squeeze it again it will like start choking and coughing it will buff up another tablet and then die and it's like really disturbing it like and it talks about its arms shriveling up and its fur falling out and you're like Ugh. and then again you can then dismantle the dead candy dispenser and it says like oh you try and pry it open and it explodes into like gore and it's like this really graphic description of like all this like goo like flying out of it and this weird slug like creature which is this life support nodule so you actually get like three really powerful ciphers out of this candy dispenser the two tablets which are permanent plus intellect boosts and the life support nodule which is a full heal for all of your effort pools once this is pretty cool it, just the description of the candy dispenser when you're like interacting with it, it's just so graphic did you have to kill the murden or did he just hand it over through a conversation i gave dracogen the cortex instead of the magmatic annulet so i actually still had the annulet at this point and the annulet is actually like a psychic translator so you can use it to commune with the bloom and I used it on the Murden. So the Murden is trying to psychically assault me with static. And I used the amulet on that, which actually like repointed its psychic attack back at it. So it knocked itself out. And then I just took the Pez dispenser off its unconscious body. But if you didn't have the amulet, you have to kill the Murden. Yeah. Okay. Just wondering how I missed out. Another very interesting thing down here is in that optional more, which you can open up that leads to the, freaking dinosaur you can find chiller's body so all throughout the game they keep referring to the great chiller as the first member of ira and she has her you know gigantic hammer that she used to like smash like the caste system and like free the slaves and the observant spec is always talking about how one day the great chiller will return and you know resume her place because she's beloved of the bloom and stuff so down in the bloom's gullet inside a dinosaur that's being digested you can find a body covered in silver scales which is like chiller's signature artifact she had this she had some weird embedded cipher that kind of gave her self-generating armor of silver scales and you find a body covered in silver scales next to a gigantic hammer so you've clearly found chiller's body she's dead she's dead the bloom ate her wake up sheeple <laughs> <laughs> did you explore that extra room any further i tried to explore everything as thoroughly as i could but you had to take on some oh what do they call them yeah like these moving moors yeah but combat was fairly easy at you took point them of on game. yeah i just killed everything i just walked away just walked away all the fights in this game are pretty easy by this point because i had just amazing weapons i mean i had the transdimensional scalpel the enhanced transdimensional scalpel. I had that sword that did relativistic damage, like the impossible blade. So you took on the whoever were on the southwest, the bottom left of that map. Yeah, there were all of the I can't remember what they're called. Next to Herger. Yeah, next to Herger. There's all of these kind of weird fighting shadows of people. You were doing much better than me at this stage. I think I was specced in the wrong way. I lost out to those. Oh really? Yeah, so I couldn't take on those corpuscular moors. Yeah, corpuscular moors, that's it, yeah. Yeah, so I couldn't take them on, obviously. 
Oh, yeah. I was just blowing stuff up with my psychic powers. In fact, I didn't even really need to use my psychic powers most of the time. I just let other people knife them. Sorry for some. We may as well mention it now. You can then go back and talk to the observant spec about finding Chilla's body. Because she always talks about how Chilla will return. And you can then go back to her and go, Oh, I found this hammer in the Bloom's gullet. And she'll be like, This is Chilla's hammer. And you're like, yeah, I found Chilla's body too. And you can basically cause her to lose her faith. And then she realizes that she can't be the first spec. She isn't the first spec. She herself is, she's a victim of the bloom, effectively. And after that, she'll say, well, I can't tell you any more stories of the bloom. In fact, I think I'll be the last spec. There won't be one after me. I think it's also possible to reassure her that it can't possibly be chiller or something well you, you cannot mention the body you can say you just found the hammer but you didn't see anything else with it so plenty of options but you know it's the truth so officially you just told her the truth i told her the truth yeah you know i found chiller's body in this hammer no need to sugarcoat it man we're all grown-ups here embrace reality truth you can withhold information and still tell the truth yes just saying that's wrong. This is how you lie, Ting. Yeah, this is how you that's lie. just lying, Ting. That's like should that, tell April this. You know, she's living a lie. She's living a lie. She's devoted her life to this weird transdimensional monster that eats people. Tell her the truth. I'm not sure what I'm not sure what tie they got for telling her this. Because it's not a good action. It's not a bad action. But it's the right action. Well, in my opinion, it's the right action. But I, I would say that because I did it. No, it is the right action. I did it and I didn't quick load. <laughs> That's how you know it's the, I thought it's the right thing to do. Okay, anyway. You also find some items in this bloom gullet. You use them to kind of clear this pool of stomach acid. And then you go down into the bloom's heart. And I think how this section plays out depends on how much the bloom likes you. In fact, maybe this is even a turning point. So, if you got the transdimensional scalpel, you would have freed an abacos, which was kind of in the cyst with the scalpel. And the abacos will be fighting a bunch of crepuscular moors. You can either side with the bloom and attack the abacos, or you can side with the abacos and attack the bloom, you can attack the moors, or you can just ignore the whole situation. I think if the Bloom really loves you and you didn't free the Abacos because you thought, well, the Bloom probably did it for a reason, then there won't be anything there and you can just walk straight to the exit. For me, they were fighting and I just ignored them and just tried to go straight to the end. How did you open the... I don't know what they are. How did you open up the rooms? How did you access the other rooms? I think I... There are those tentacles, right? Yeah. And I channeled a tidal surge into them. Oh, no more cutting for you. No more cutting for me. I didn't cut anything open with this scalpel. I kept cutting. It's the quickest way. Quickest way. <laughs> the quickest way to a woman's heart is to cut her open with a scalpel. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That's a bit weird. <laughs> the quickest way to the bloom's heart is to cut the quickest it open way with to a man's heart. <laughs> the quickest way to anyone's heart is to cut them open with a scalpel. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's prob- you probably shouldn't do it, though. It might not have the effect. You- <laughs> it might not have the desired effect. Yeah. I think channeling a tidal surge into the tentacles actually is also counted as a negative action to the bloom. So probably, actually, I didn't do any better than if I had cut it open. So what is the positive 
thing to do. Uh, let the bloom eat your memories, which causes you some damage. Okay. Yeah. Basically, just let the bloom get it what it wants. But that's no way to have a relationship, you know? You've got to have some give and take. Sometimes you've got to let it eat your memories. Other times, you've got to cut it open with a scalpel. Don't take relationship advice from me. Anyway, you get to the heart, and there is the dude who's really maz off. And you have to then, again, commune with the bloom and pass some stat checks. Was this easy for you? Yep. Yeah, it was pretty easy for me too. And then you free the dude who turns out to be Mazoff. And he tells you, oh, I've got to get back to the first cast off. And you're like, the Memovira is the first cast off. Whoa. And in his hurry to get away, he drops a mere caster. And you didn't use it? No, I didn't use it. This mere caster was really cool just from a lore standpoint. Like the actual storyline it tells you was really cool, I thought. Because, you know, they always mention the endless battle. So in this Mirkaster, you actually have to take part in the endless battle. And again, it's kind of insinuated, but you've never really seen it directly explained to you up front that the endless battle is this constant war of attrition between the forces of the first cast off and the forces of the changing god. And that no one ever wins. It's like a perpetual stalemate because they're both rewriting history all the time. And this Mirkaster goes into why that happens. So it turns out that both sides have a really powerful artifact that allows them to rewind time. Actually, basically, they just have quick save, quick slide as well. <laughs> one of them has one called Heaven's Rejoinder, and the other one has an artifact called the Reconciler of Truth. And they both basically do the same thing. They both basically let you look at the timeline, and if you don't like it, reset it to a previous point in time. And this particular Mirkaster covers a really cool bit of lore where you are a high-ranking cast-off in the army of the first cast-off and your artifact, I think it's the Reconciler of Truth, has been destroyed. So you are going to lose the Ender's Battle. Like This is like a major turning point. Your artifact has been destroyed. You can't reset time anymore. You're going to lose. And you have one shot to turn things around you have to destroy heaven's rejoinder to level the playing field again otherwise they can control time now and you can't so you go on effectively a suicide mission to destroy their artifact and you have to go off and do it and it's really cool i don't know um what the other possible outcomes of it are but when i did it i got through this kind of crazy labyrinth of like death moths and stuff and got to Heaven's Rejoinder, only to discover that Heaven's Rejoinder wasn't there. So like, oh, I know, I failed my mission. And I go back to talk to, you know, my commander and explain that, oh, I failed the mission. And they're like, no, you didn't. The Reconciler of Truth is back. You succeeded. And it turns out that they succeeded their mission to destroy your artifact. You succeeded in your mission to destroy their artifact. And thus, they had to reset time to before your artifact was destroyed. And now it's status quo again. You both have your time resetters back because they had the choice of either both losing them or both having them and they decided it was better to both have them i thought it was really cool it's like a whoa when everyone can quick save and quick load what happens that's very cool and it's also another way you can discover that well it's kind of at this point you pretty much already know that the first cast off is the memoir but you know it gives you a cutscene where well i say a cutscene it gives you a choose your own adventure where your commander says oh 
I'm going to let you into a secret. You have to go to the Bloom and talk to Merovira because the Merovira is the first cast off. She still lives and she needs someone to, you know. So this whole sequence of events happens just before you get to the Bloom. It's quite cool. Anyway, you don't have to do this, Mirkaster. Clearly. <laughs> and you go back to talk to the Merovira and she says, It's a long cut scene. Hey, surprise, surprise. I'm the first cast off. And I'm like, well, duh. <laughs> Did you guess that it would be the Memovira? Eventually, but not that soon before. It took me, I think it was not obvious for a long time. Did you? It's quite funny, but I, as soon as I arrived in the bloom and knew that I had to find the first cast off, I immediately thought, I bet it's the Memovira. But then... There's all this other backstory about how Makina knew the Memovira and she was one of the previous Memovira's lieutenants who betrayed him. And then I thought, oh, I guess I must be wrong then. But it turns out, no, I was right. And it's just that the first cast off has this ability to change her appearance completely. So that's how she did it. She just hid for years, pretending to be a regular person before she took control. I think the thing is when there's so much story, there are hints along the way. But whether you attach yourselves to them or not is another thing. So, yeah, maybe at some point I did think that, but I never thought much of it. In that sense, Torment does succeed. (laughs) Okay, back to the long cutscene. Everything has been building up to this point. So, the guy you were rescuing is revealed he's Mazoff. The Memovira is revealed to be the first cast-off. She's repaired the resonance chamber. She tells you, if you didn't already know, that... The changing God's plan is to merge all the cast-offs back into himself, which will kill all the cast-offs. She tells you that her plan is to sever the tidal connection between, well, between all the cast-offs and the tides, and that will stop the sorrow hunting you. You can then point out to her that this will kill the cast-offs just as surely as reabsorbing them into the changing God, because the cast-offs need the tides to live. If you sever the tidal connection, you will cease to exist. And then she doesn't really believe you. I mean, she just goes ahead with her plan anyway. So you can disagree with her and fight her. Or you can just say, fine, let's go with your plan. It's actually a false choice. It doesn't actually make any difference to how the game plays out. Like, if you fight her and then have to struggle to defeat her and all of her, you know, bodyguards, and then go and mess with the resonance chamber yourself to reconfigure it, to, like, reabsorb all the cast-offs into you... It doesn't actually change the next part of the game at all. So you can just completely avoid this whole complicated combat by siding with her. Which is what I did. Which is what I did too. I actually did this because I was lazy. I was just like, oh, because I was trying to play this game on the plane. Because I was trying to get this done in time for our conversation. Because originally we planned to talk about the whole game last time. So I thought the only way I was going to finish it would be on the plane. So I just picked the easy way out to see what happened. And it turned out, oh, this is a perfectly viable solution. I'm just going to go with it. Which is lucky, because otherwise I would have had to fight her and do this whole tortuous battle. I think it would be it's a really tough battle if you don't side with her. If you do side with her, the sorrow just immediately shows up and starts trying to nuke everyone. And you just have to hold out long enough to activate the resonance chamber. But it's really trivial because... You sided with her. Yeah, her people just take care of the sorrow, just distract it long enough, and you can just stand there. Which is what I did. Just stood by the stairs... Same. It's like, yeah, I'll watch this side. You watch the other side where the sorrow was attacking and we'll just like drink tea. And then now, finally, this is the end game. 
the resonance chamber activates. Everyone gets sucked into the labyrinth, which is a mental construct in your mind, or it turns out in all the cast-offs' minds. And the changing god is in there too, trying to use the resonance to fulfill his plan, which is to absorb all the cast-offs into himself again. We mentioned it last time, but Rin comes back. Yeah, she does. If you sent Rin home, once you appear in the labyrinth and take a step forward, a portal opens and Rin just steps through it, but an adult Rin. And she says, oh, I found you. That god of finding I gave you all those years ago led me to you in your time of need. And Rin is so overpowered. There was a point before this where I thought Rin should have come back by now, knowing that she would come back. So I used the bronze sphere before that final stage. No, that long cutscene. Anyway, she pops up. I was relieved because I just presumed I needed her. Gone. I don't know what to say. I mean, just Rin... 15, 15, 15. 666 FH, probably. I think something like that. Yeah, it is something like that. I, I can't remember exactly. I think she doesn't have that much strength and doesn't have that much strength edge, but she definitely has a lot of speed edge. She definitely has like 15, 15, 66 speed edge, intellect edge. So she is crazy powerful. She can also carry the maximum possible number of ciphers. So every single cipher slot is unlocked. And she just has crazy abilities. So she has animate balefire, which summons like a living construct of fire, which is like a tier four nano skill. She has maelstrom, which is another tier four nano skill. And she has two unique skills to her, which are just even more ridiculous. So hearth and healing, it costs five. And she has so much intellect edge that it basically means she can cast it for free. It's an AOE 30 point heal. So she can heal your entire party for free. And Blood and Bell is a five intellect cost AOE damaging spell. Again, she can pretty much cast it however she likes. So she is crazy overpowered. She's gone from being the weakest character to the strongest by a freaking mile. This is how all games should end. With <laughs> this feeling of being like monstrously overpowered. Yeah. The, an interesting thing is that Rin's character arc is actually written by Patrick Rothfuss, who's quite a famous fantasy author. He wrote, well, I think it was meant to be a trilogy, but it's been, it must have been like, goodness knows how many years between books. He's almost as bad as George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, the Name of the Wind and A Wise Man's Fear. Anyway, that's a random aside. So this last bit of the game, you can go into these extra fathoms that show up and recruit other party members that you brought with you. Makina will always be here because she's a cast-off, so she'll be drawn into the resonance with you. Other non-cast-off party members will only be here if they were in your party at the time that the chamber activated. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. So I had Tibia, Callistage, Eritus. And thus, that's why I was able to finish their storylines off. Another interesting thing, one of the fathoms that you can go into that's now opened up 
is the Oasis Fathom. I actually think that these fathoms are just like all that's left over from what was originally meant to be a much bigger part of the game because they mentioned in the kickstarter that one of the stretch goals is this oasis of mirage Olios, which is a kind of or in the desert like a giant bubble of water and you go there but it's just a random you know one area so that's all that was left of this stretch goal i guess it was too complicated to make for reels and similarly there is the village that is in Makina's, well, in that Mirkaster where you encounter Makina, Tasha's Mirkaster, that village is one of the fathoms here as well. Anything to say about all this business and recruiting characters? I just have to say that Eretus didn't need persuading. So you just talked to him and he just rejoined you? Yeah. Did you not have Eretus? No, I had Eretus there, but I talked to him and just decided instead to free him from the nano swarm. So he just, after I freed him, he just disappeared. Okay. Did I tried to recruit everyone. That's it. Yeah. So, well, of the people I brought in, you know, I, Tibia was there and I resolved a storyline. I got him back. Calistige and Eretus, I actually basically just let them go. So Calistige became transcendent, Datasphere, lady. Eretus separated him from the audience and he disappears from the resonance as well. But luckily I had Rin and Makina, who got drawn in anyway. So I still had a full party. In fact, I think I could have also recruited Oom, because Oom just hangs out in the labyrinth anyway. Okay, that explains why I had such an unsatisfactory end to Calisthesia's storyline. And then, I don't know what else there is to say here. I think you have to just fight through a bunch of fathoms, some of which are kind of puzzly, some of which are kind of combat-y. There's a little bit of exposition, because there's the crystal coffin of the changing god's daughter for example that's in there and you can kind of talk to a shadow of the changing god's daughter I'm trying to think of what else there is there's a shadow of the first the funny thing is that eventually you get back to the dark fathom which is actually where you started the game i don't know if you noticed this uh now you told me only now yeah so the game ends where it started when you wake up after the cutscene of you falling at the very beginning of the game and there's that bowl you have to shift and all those weird hexagonal things that come up and down, if you remember, there's a bit where there's like three bronze doors and that is where the game ends as well. After you've gone through all these fathoms and fought through them, you end up back in that dark fathom with the hexagonal floor and those three bronze doors. The two doors either side take you to mirrors of the changing god and the central door opens the resonance and allows you to finish the game. You confront the sorrow and the game ends. Any interesting comments here? You have to do those mirrors. You have no choice. Did you find them particularly memorable? Nope. No. <laughs> oh, that's a lie. So you, you learn. Oh, if you fail, you can actually fail the mirror. I don't know if that's really the case for all the mirrors. So what happened for you? I was unable to escape the sorrow. I think you have to fail to escape the sorrow. I don't think you can escape the sorrow, yeah. No? So I didn't fail the mirror. I think that's the intended ending of it. It's quite interesting. There's tell, actually... tell me what happened to you. So these two mirrors are major points of exposition. They're like two turning points in the changing god's life. One of them is his inability to save his daughter and the first appearance of the sorrow. So... 
your daughter is dying. She's in like a stasis chamber. She was injured by a weapon of the Tabat. And the weapon is actually based on the tides. So it's not that it just damaged her body, but it somehow damaged her soul somehow. You are working on technology to save her. You figure out a way of transferring her consciousness into another body because her original body was dying. But the new body starts dying as well because of this like soul damage, I guess. And you have also figured out a way to transfer your own consciousness. But in doing so, you have got the attention of the sorrow, which is coming to kill you. And the major thing here is that you are talking to this kind of virtual agent in a staff you're carrying. And that agent is a copy of you. So it's a copy of your mind state that's made every few hours, minutes. I can't remember exactly what period it copies your mind state on, but it's a copy of you. He mentions that it's like a last resort backup, you know, should his body die. And ultimately, no matter what you do, the sorrow breaks through and you are like emergency teleported away and your daughter's body is also destroyed by the sorrow. Like the whole laboratory is blown up. So that's me number one. Okay. Is that your experience of it too? I thought I was faffing around too long and I didn't escape. Yeah, no matter what you do, I think you can't escape and then you get emergency teleported away. If you talk to the agent, he tells you that there's an emergency teleport set up. And you can order him to teleport your daughter, but he won't do it. He'll teleport you instead. Okay. Me number two is actually just as interesting. So it takes place at the very start of the game, like just before you wake up falling from orbit. You are on this moon and you are making preparations for the resonance chamber and doing all the sciencey stuff on the moon or on a moon. And again, you're talking to your virtual agent mind state copy. But then the sorrow shows up and you're like, how did the sorrow find me here? I'm on the freaking moon. Well, a freaking moon. I mean, it's the billion years in the future. Goodness knows what's going on. And you can try and hold it off. You can try and do some stuff. Eventually... You end up in the escape pod. The sorrow catches up with you and like does something to you before you can cast off this body and go into another one, which is a major plot point. And that's when you wake up, like you as the last cast off, wake up in that body. When you finally then go through the final door and talk to the sorrow, the sorrow actually tells you that the only reason it found the changing God is because you went into that mirror. So like, it's like a time loop. The very act of you going into that mirror and the sorrow attacking it and causing you to come into being led to you going into that mirror and the sorrow has been tracking you. So when you went back into that mirror, it then found the moon and was able to call itself in the past. It's crazy, but kind of cool. So that's how the sorrow finds the changing God. You exist because of the sorrow attacking the moon and the changing God having to, I don't know, cast off that body or being suppressed in that body or even dying and a new consciousness arising in that body it's kind of unclear what happens there deliberately and then you end up back in this dark fathom and access the mirror and your action of accessing the mirror of the changing god on that moon allows the sorrow to find the moon and call itself in the past yes it's cool we haven't talked about also how we resolve the situation with the changing god How did you resolve it? Well, is the spectre the changing god? Or is the spectre a copy of the changing god? Because this is the crux of it. 
did the changing god cast off this body that you're in and you're the last cast off and the changing god is the spectre or did the changing god die and this body was then vacant and your mind came into being in the body and the spectre is actually just the assistant it's just the copy of the changing god's mind but you have to convince him either way well if you don't convince him then the spectre is the changing god and attacks you and you have to beat the spectre and there's a crisis but i just convinced the spectre that no he's just a copy that's what i did i didn't tell him i was a changing god i didn't convince him that i was a changing god i was never convinced i was a changing god so i was never comfortable saying that yeah but i convinced him that maybe i'm not the changing god but you're not the changing god either you're just a copy yep. this is my body now and it just accepted it surprisingly so it's like all right off you go you make the choice that was unsatisfactory you think that was unsatisfactory you can you can have the fight if you want. Yeah, well, it's just too easy to convince him. It was quite an easy conversation check. I don't know. I quite liked it in a way. I mean, what is... It's very philosophical. What is a person? Is the changing God, you know, their memories? Is is the spectre the changing God because it's a copy of the changing God's mind state? Or is it just a copy never going to be the same as the original? Is that continuity of consciousness what matters? Let's move on and come back to this. I think there's a like a larger discussion to be had at the end okay and then the final final choice then you meet the sorrow and the sorrow explains that in my opinion very unsatisfactorily that it is an ai a defense mechanism to protect against abuse of the tides what lame and it's hunting you down because you're abusing the tides it explains that the cast-offs, even if you're not using your powers, are affecting the tides. You know, you bring disruption in your wake because the tides are meant to be in balance and you are embodiments of one or more aspects of the tides. Like, you are strongly blue tide or red tide or whatever. And thus, you bring imbalance and cause people to behave differently by your very existence. And so you have to be snuffed out. And what are the options? You can either all be merged into one body and the choices are your body the first cast off's body matt keener's body with their consciousness or your consciousness you can merge into a body with mika's consciousness which is the changing god's daughter that he was trying to save the whole time you can leave things the way they are forget all this resonance malarkey and the sorrow will just let you have a bit of fun for a while and then it'll go back to hunting you again or there's actually a secret kind of option that you have to unlock by going through all this conversation with the sorrow. And you can actually eventually reveal that the sorrow will let you do whatever you want. The only thing it will oppose is you trying to destroy it using the power of the resonance. And you're like, wait, that's an option. It's like, well, you actually have a lot of power here. So there's actually an option to destroy the sorrow. But it says that that will cause everyone to go mad. Or a lot of people to go mad anyway. So what did you choose? I wasn't really satisfied with any of the options. For some reason, the story didn't drive me to any... Didn't, yeah, it didn't drive me to a decision. Yeah, none of the options are like an unambiguously good ending. None of them are really like a happy ending. But they're all also all nothing endings. Because you, you're not connected to any re- sort of consequence or resolution. I didn't feel like, oh, I have some attachment to the other cast-offs. Oh, I have some attachment to myself. 
you have some attachment to yourself. You want to exist, surely. Oh, no, because, you know, you also think, oh, I want gold tied. <laughs> selfless ting. Actually, no, well, if you think about it, I just want the gold tied. I'm not that selfless. Yeah. Is it for you or is it because you want other people to think you're good? Are you actually good or is it how you appear? Exactly. See, you know how it works. <laughs> so reluctantly, I just chose, I want all everyone to come into me, into my body. And it's one of those where I justified it after the fact because he questions you. The AI, the AI questions you. I didn't know why I chose that. I wasn't really tied to that choice, but I had to justify it because the game asks me to. What did you choose? I initially chose to destroy the sorrow. Because I was like, I don't like your reality. I choose my own. And then it said, why are you doing this? And again, I was just like, oh, I guess I have to justify it. I suppose the only reason to choose this option is because it's the only way that the other cast-offs can survive. So I said, oh, okay, I want to, you know, the cast-offs of my family, I want to protect them. Which is not really true. I wasn't actually that attached to the other cast-offs anyway either. But, you know, again, you've got to justify it somehow. And then, you know, Kamehameha, you blow up the sorrow. Kaboom. And? Well, then you leave the resonance and everyone goes freaking nuts. You're in the bloom and you hear all these people going, ah, and screaming. And then Callistage is there and she's just going, like she's like gone crazy. She just like collapses and goes insane. Callistage is the only one I felt bad about. I was like, forget the others, you know, after thousands of other people. But Callistage I felt kind of bad about because like, oh, but we'd adventured together and you'd become one with the data sphere i mean this is garbage Calistage is a freaking data god at this point you know she shouldn't go mad but whatever i guess they had to give me a reason to not pick this option so i felt bad about doing that but that was my initial choice and your second choice (laughs) oh i just merged everyone into me still f the others sorry (laughs) and that's the end of the game and that's the end of the game and then allegedly the whole game was about your legacy which is really just about your tides but it just gives you like a one paragraph thing it was a bit unsatisfying, to be honest. But it's not just about your legacy. Well, it's no, one a paragraph of... about each of the people, really, in the party, and a few other critical story quests. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. And so there's a bit about your legacy, and then there's a bit about your party members. I don't care about my legacy, really. <laughs> well, I mean, like, if you merge everyone into you, then, again, it's, there's, like, there's, like, no good ending. Like, all the endings are kind of bad in a way. So if you merge everyone into you, it talks about how the cast-offs were like powerful and they vacated their seats of power and then other people have had to like take control of the power vacuum and it causes some chaos. But, you know. So it wasn't all good. It wasn't all good. And then if you, you know, left the cast-offs alive, well, everyone's insane. <laughs> so, well, maybe not everyone's insane, but a lot of people go crazy and that obviously causes great chaos anyway. On your companion side i mean depending on how things went with makina for me makina was like freed of her demons and went on to like live a fulfilling life and rebuild you know the village that she loved um before they all got slaughtered and like put it back up again tibia goes and becomes like the protector of that village that orvin was trying to protect and so that's kind of like a fulfilling ending for him eritus goes back to being a yol herder because he's freed of a thing Calistige is like you know a data god and she just goes off and does inscrutable things. Seritus died for me, which was sad. And Castige wandered lost. You should have tried harder with their quests then. <laughs> was, I, was, I needed them to for the end. You needed them. This is a silver tide. You're not gold tide. You're a faker. You're a faker. You're silver tide, man. What else? 
Alagern got his village back. Rin went off for more adventures. Ronos? Rebuilt okay. the memorialists. And Pequo. 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 I don't know. That's how I'm saying. That's how I choose to say his name. Okay. Goodness knows how you're meant to say it. Pequo turned out to actually be really smart and was then challenging for running the Order of Truth. What did you ask him to spend his money on? I told him he should get an education. I told him to go to the Order of Truth. Okay, same for me then. Yeah. So it turns out he's really smart and he is, you know, challenging. What's the person's name? Whoever the leader of the Order of Truth, he's now a contender to be leader of the Order of Truth. That's it. We're done. Ta-da! We're going to talk about things overall. Oh man, this episode was really long again. I'm really sorry. But yeah, there's so much, there's so much actually just like meta stuff overall to talk about. How do you feel about the game in general? I think we've actually kind of hinted that unsatisfying. But also satisfying. The moments where it is satisfying. I liked the bloom. I thought the quests and stories in the bloom were interesting and engaging and surprising. Ultimately, although it had its moments, I think it didn't fulfill a lot of the promise it originally kind of implied. It's weird as well because it has a lot of parallels with Planescape Torment. It's, it's, it's like the Star Wars films, you know, like Planescape Torment is like the original Star Wars trilogy that everyone loves. And this is like some weird mix between the, the prequel trilogy and the new politically correct fan service trilogy, you know, like they all kind of they all what George Lucas said what they like they rhyme isn't it that's how he described what he was trying to do with the prequel trilogy it's like that the last cast off is the nameless one and like the changing god is like Ravel she makes you in a sense the sorrow is like the transcendent one I don't know there's many many parallels and again it's like another case where the game like comes full circle and ends where it starts and all the endings are vaguely unsatisfying. Like you can, the final conflict can be won by having a conversation. You know, these are all parallels between these two games, for better or worse. So, three each, so we don't go mental. Okay, we can start with the mirrors and the mirror casters. Did you use them all? I discovered that you can only use them once. Understandable. So, I actually just quick saved and then did them and then quick loaded again, to be honest, because I'm really bad at living with things that you can only do once. But yeah, I did open all the mere casters I found and tried them out. You know, the thing is, though, your cast of ability is meant to be that when you go into a mere caster, it changes the past. None of them really change anything of substance. Disappointingly, it feels like a missed opportunity. It's probably something they meant to do, but they just didn't have time to do it. So, they, I mean, they do have impact. Like, it does occasionally change what people say to you, but only in a very small way. It doesn't change any of the large-scale flow of the story. And you? I was disappointed with them. And, we, you know, we, we mentioned that, was there more to the mirrors? And you, you found out, yes, yes, there was meant to be more. Yeah, I feel it was quite... One thing I thought was quite interesting is, I know that this game is built on the same engine as Pillars of Eternity. Like, it's using... Well, it, it says at the start of the game in like the attract sequence like based on the pillars of eternity technology and i know in pillars of eternity there is a kind of mechanic where it brings up well like a choose your own adventure type page so i wondered if they just actually deliberately done that and 
were reusing that functionality to make the mirrors. But more interestingly, there's actually a post-mortem kind of interview podcast about Torment Ties of Numenera. And it turns out the mirror casters were originally meant to be complete areas that you play like the normal game, but they just didn't have time to do it. So they weren't really meant to be choose your own adventures. It was just a budgetary time issue. One of the most painful things is this, the changing god and how that comes to an end. Is that how it ends in, in Planescape? Torment? Well, I mean, that would be spoilers for Planescape Torment. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but I found that very unsatisfying, how it's you stir a statement, it breaks his logic, and therefore everything's okay. Now you tell me whether that's okay or not. Yeah, this whole overarching story was in many ways very unsatisfying. And I think for both of us, like a lot of the things we kind of highlighted in this last section to talk about are to do with that. So the two primary antagonists in the game are the Changing God and the Sorrow. And both of them don't really feel like anything. They've actually got no character. Like you very rarely interact with the Changing God. And when you do, the Changing God has very little over motivation other than just like being a jerk. Like he just wants his body back. He wants to just like kill the first cast off or something, you know, and like merge everyone back into him. But why is he doing any of this? And they reveal this thing about him trying to bring his daughter back. But that's not even his primary motivation anymore by the time you meet him, like thousands of years later. And similarly with the sorrow, what the hell is the sorrow? You know, they reveal that it's this AI thing that protects the tides. What the hell are the tides? It's really unsatisfying. I think if you look at the development diaries for Numenera, the plot was originally quite different. I, this is another thing that kind of comes up in passing on this you know, interview post-mortem. So I think that the Changing Goal was originally meant to be more of a defined character rather than this kind of nebulous, it's whatever enemy you want it to be. And same with the Sorrow. I think the Sorrow was meant to be directly connected to the Changing God rather than this weird nebulous AI that protects the tides. You know, why is it even called the Sorrow? It feels like the Sorrow was originally meant to be some embodiment of the Changing God's sorrow at his inability to bring his daughter back, to save his daughter. I and that would, that would have been a much better story if the very act of trying to bring his daughter back, you know, caused him to create the first cast off because like he's trying to transfer the consciousness and that causes him to like split, create a cast off and also simultaneously create the sorrow. Yeah. That, that would have been a much better story. It feels like it's really, I don't know, it's very unsatisfying. But what you gave me sounds very good. He's just saying I should be a writer. <laughs> and if it's all original. See, the problem is I'm only good at like poo-pooing other people's work, not coming up with stuff on my own. <laughs> I only have one more thing. I had a problem with all the oddities. Maybe the oddities masked objects that were meant to be something else. I actually really like the oddities. In some ways, they felt like missed opportunities because... In explicitly labelling it as an oddity, it's like saying this item is useless, just sell it. Yes. But I also just really like kind of scene setting and lore stuff, so the oddities were very good for that. And some of the oddities did actually have a use function, and then it's like, okay, this is an oddity that's worth keeping, because it probably lets me do something useful. Some of them seem to be red herrings, like there's this weird 
sea urchin thing you can stick on your eye that lets you see more colors and i never found a use for that i kept expecting to have to put it on one time and it would let me see something that i couldn't normally see but i never found a use for it but then other ones do actually have a use like there's this kind of thing of two obsidian bands that are connected together and when you examine it you can either pass some intellect checks or Matkina can just tell you oh this is a cipher that's two people switch places and then it becomes a cipher but to begin with it's an oddity so quite oh, interesting okay. it, it would have been better in a way if everything started out as an oddity until you figured out how to use it i mean annoying it would have been annoying but it would, it would have been better it would have been more in keeping with the law i don't know well the cipher system itself is an integral part of this monty cook rpg mechanics uh for numenara so i don't know maybe they're kind of also penned in by that i'm not sure that's all i have yeah, I think that's all that we really need to say. I think we've, I think we've gotten our point across sufficiently. I have to say, this was a good game. It's ah, oh, it's just a frustratingly close to very good. Yeah, the the mechanics of it, you know, there, there were flashes of brilliance, like the heist of the cortex. You know, there there were some there were some parts of it that just really worked. But there are lots of other parts of it that just feel deeply unsatisfying. And then those unsatisfying parts, did they feel that they had to do them to try and make it as much like Planescape Torment as possible? They had to shoehorn the story to fit this existing mould? Or is it just, it seemed like a good idea and it just didn't pan out? I mean, who knows? We should listen to the post-mortem. <laughs> she laying on that we haven't listened to it. I just read a synopsis. <laughs> so, the next book club game? The next book club game is Super Mario Odyssey. So this is your choice. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just making this clear, because then it's my choice next time. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like you're blaming me. There's no blame here. Psychological so, safety. It's the post-game. Post-game? I can say post-game. Well, to clarify, we're going to do... <laughs> like, plans change, but the current plan is to do one episode on Super Mario Odyssey. Again, this is your preference to do just the one. So we're not going to just say, oh, play up to this world, play up to this world. We're going to talk about the whole game from starting out all the way to rescuing the princess to what happens after you rescue the princess. So we're going to talk about the whole thing. But the justifica justification for this is that we've both finished the game and the game opens up afterwards. And that's where it's really interesting and that's what we can talk about. I don't think from zero to the hundred odd moons you need is very interesting. Yeah, so I think we both kind of mentioned a few times in the previous months that we'd been playing Super Mario Odyssey and that was it a good game? Was it not a good game? I didn't understand why people said it was so good until I finished the game and then I felt differently about it. So we're not talking just about the game when you first play it and get up to rescuing the princess. We're going to talk about the game as a whole with no restrictions. And, you know, really, up until you rescue the princess, it's kind of just like the tutorial. The game starts proper after you've done that. Which is itself, a well, I mean, it's an interesting thing we should discuss about difficulty in games and so on so the book club game for next time will be super mario odyssey 
the whole thing. No holds barred. Spoilers abound. We were Lost Levels Club. We still are Lost Levels Club. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please, please, please. You can find us on Twitter. At Lost Levels Club. On email. Mike.and.ting at lostlevels.club. On Reddit. Slash r slash Lost Levels Club. On Twitch. And YouTube as Lost Levels Club. That's it. And that's it. Are you grateful for living in this Yobbo neighbourhood? <laughs> Yobbo neighbourhood? What are you talking about? <laughs> Everyone's got driving small cars with massive exhausts. Yes, you're right. Everyone's got like freaking giant... What what they call it? It's like the opposite of a muffler or something, isn't it? They're just like amplifying their exhaust sounds. It's true. It's really annoying. You know, you can't tell because this is what I spend... Oh, th- there it goes again. Maybe I should keep this one in. I saw it said on Reddit that if you want to edit your podcast for kind of audio quality, expect to spend 60 minutes per 10 minutes of audio. And I do. I spend probably at least eight hours editing each episode of the podcast to cut out all of this irritating sound of like buses driving past and people honking their car horns. Some podcasts leave it in. Maybe I should do the same. I can't. I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> they they just leave it in and they, they they ignore it, but sometimes they comment. But it's much more obvious with their recordings. It's like that they're, they're recording on the street. Yeah. The, the problem is because I know it's possible to clean it all up, I feel like I should. Fine. So what are you really grateful for? Generally. It's almost a sieve. I haven't had to say this like an hour ago. <laughs> Because <laughs> the shocking truth, we recorded this episode back to back with the previous one because I'm going to London again. I'm going to London again for work this time. Of the past three months, I've spent like two weeks a month back in London. This is ridiculous, but it's nice to go back to London, I guess. So you're grateful for this, right? I'm grateful for free business class flights to London. I mean, they're not free, but I'm not paying for them. So they're effectively free. No doubt in the next recording will be, so I didn't go to London. <laughs> so I didn't go to London. My trip was cancelled due to budget cuts. Also, now I'm unemployed. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So Michael says bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>